complex narratives of being taken by alien beings into UFOs on beams of light. The Air Force is trying to cover up with a picture of Venus and the moon. From my own point of view, I'm going to be very disappointed if UFOs turn out to be nothing more than visitors from another planet, because I think that could be something much more interesting. I'm not telling you that. The United States government is telling you that. Hey guys, welcome back to Disclosure Team. I'm your host, Vinnie Adams. Good to see you. Uh, it seems like this Wednesday live interview thing is working out really well. So uh, I think going forward, I'm going to try and do that, you know, consistently. Uh, I am recording a few interviews now or starting to record a few more interviews, which will go out a few days before to YouTube members and Patreon members um, because, you know, I've been lucky enough to have people willing to support me in that way. So I feel like I owe them something. Um, so this is just a thank you to them. But all my interviews will come out with, you know, within a reasonable amount of time um, going forward. So thank you guys for that. Um, as always, please keep the live chat cool, calm and collected. It is okay to have differences of opinion, but let's just uh, treat each other with a bit of respect and uh, not get into any slanging matches. I'd appreciate that. Uh, one final thing before I bring my guest in. For the past year and a half since I've been doing this show, I've had multiple companies and people approach me for sponsorship. And, and I've not resonated with any in the past because it's got to be something that I, you know, I'm happy to promote. But I'm finally able to say that I have got my first sponsor and it is a novel. It is this novel here called 29 Degrees North. And it's a novel about uh, impending cataclysms in North America and Europe, the kind of Hollywood movie style, easy to read book. I highly recommend it. It's about seven bucks if you're into reading and, and you like a good uh, fun novel that you can't put down. The link is in the description. It's in pinned in the in the live chat. If you want to read a book and support the channel at the same time, you're able to do so that way. OK, guys, cool. Right. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, I've been following John's work for many years, and this is the first time that I've spoken to him face to face. We've had a, a few conversations behind the scenes, but we're going to get into it today. Lots of things to cover. If you do have any questions, pop them in capital letters and I'll try and ask them at some point. So let's get into it, guys. Please welcome John Greenwald. John, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, not bad at all. Thank you for being here. Of course, it's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to it. Thank you uh, for the invitation. Ah, anytime, anytime. Well, John, I think the best place to start, and I know I mentioned this, you, uh, this to you before we came on, is I'd love to just go back to your early days and what got you into, into FOIA and the UFO subject as well. So if you wouldn't mind just giving us a bit of an overview, that'd be great. Thank you. Of course, of course. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been a long time now. I'm, I always uh, feel so old when I timestamp <laughs> it, but... Uh, back in 96, uh, I was 15 years old and still in high school and just fell in love with the mystery of UFOs, as we all have. Uh, it was not based on an experience, but rather I was just curious. And, 
you know, you look even back then, Google really wasn't a thing uh, at all. It was Alta Vista at the time. And, yep. you know, you search and there were still hundreds of thousands of websites. But I was so frustrated by just kind of the lack of evidence and the contradicting stories. And, you know, you didn't know what to believe. And I learned about this thing called the Freedom of Information Act from a website that had the 1976 Iran incident document on it. So for anybody who loves UFO history, the 76 Iran incident is is an amazing one. And I read it and thought, there's no way that that's real. And it said, uh, it was like it read my mind, the webpage said, if you doubt that it's legitimate, you can use this thing called the Freedom of Information Act to get it. And I was like, well, what the heck is that? And uh, it taught you how to do it. And I just kind of fired it off. Uh, and sure enough, that four page document was real. And I went back to the internet and frantically looked for more because there's a certain, even though we all doubt the government, we know the US government lies, right? I mean, that's provable. It's yeah. not even a conspiracy <laughs> to say stuff like that. So we know that, but there was some kind of legitimacy to have that government document sent to you from the US government. And you read it and you go, wait a minute, they say there's nothing to UFOs and yet, Here's a UFO that turns into not two, but three other UFOs, kind of like a, a mothership uh, is the only description to really kind of give this. We have one main craft and multiple ones coming out of it, according to this government document. And you go, well, this can't be real. So I went back to the Internet and tried to find more stuff like that. But nobody in 96 uh, was really doing it. There was one website that had some text documents on it. And uh, I think that was the computer UFO network. But there wasn't um, a website that you could see the documents, and that's what I wanted. And so what I did was I started using the Freedom of Information Act, and then as I was getting the documents, I built the website that I was looking for. So now fast forward 26 years, uh, I've collected about 3.2 million pages. They're all online. You can download them for free. Uh, but the Black Vault is essentially the evolution of what I was looking for as a 15-year-old kid, but I never found and that was a free resource you could go on, download the information. And in some cases, my record's 14 and a half years to wait for a FOIA request to wow. be processed <laughs> and, and the documents to come. Wasn't a UFO-related request, but regardless, 14 and a half years is a heck of a long, a long time to wait. And so what I um, really loved about the idea and why I didn't want to ever let it go was that what took me 14 and a half years to get, Vinny can go online and download it like that. And that's why I love what I do, because it gives so many people access to this information and it's unfiltered. It is absolutely how I receive it from the government and people can take it from there. So that's, oh, that's, that's my nutshell story. No, that's amazing, honestly. And I, I've, I've been researching using documents now for about 13 years and Black Vault was the first place I started. You know, uh, you know, I was going on to the government websites as well, but that was like the, the main resource. So, you know, you've helped me a lot over the years. So, you know, I have to to uh to highlight that i really do appreciate Thank that you. um so how you know you you file these reports and some of them take years how do you do you catalog what you've sent have you got a good system in place how does that work yeah i wish i started when i was 15 doing that i didn't i was about 2000 FOIA requests in when i re and i forget how many years that was but i realized i needed a better system and so i created uh my own database and i designed my own uh, backend database. Nobody sees it but me, meaning it's not like a public website or whatever. Sure. And I just archive, uh, like I archive all the requests that go in and keep track of what's opened, uh, what's, you know, being processed and then what's closed. 
So uh, at this point, I'm well over 10,500 FOIA requests since I started. Uh, but that doesn't include the follow-ups and, you know, yeah. the back and forth. So one request could have, you know, five to, to eight to ten back and forths. But the actual individual cases is over 10,500. And it's it's still a very difficult task to to keep on top of because there are so many. And then a lot of times you get so backed up uh, with waiting times and stuff like that that you forget about them. A yeah. lot of times. And I try and keep reminders on the real important ones. But sometimes, you know, you'll go years and then you'll get a response. I'm like, oh, my God, I forgot I requested that. And and it's uh, it, it's a laughable thing, but it gets frustrating quite a bit. So I try and keep up on it and and keep hounding them about cases that, that start to get a little bit old. Yeah, now I can imagine. And have you ever been sent anything like that you shouldn't have been sent? Have they ever made mistakes along the way? Like anything, you know, anything like that? Yeah, I, I don't like to go into too much detail about this. The answer is yes. Um, it's happened uh, a few times. It's nothing. There was no like amazing state secret that came my way. So let me let me make sure I say that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, m uh, mistakes have been made. And, and I'm not out to, to blow anybody's privacy or, or especially reveal any classified information. So, um, you know, I worked with with them to to get that information back, but they're human, you know, um, it's yeah. more so a lot of times exempted information versus classified information. And essentially what that means is it's unclassified information, but you know, it could be as uh, easy as somebody's name or, you know, uh, contact information that they don't want out in the open. And I'm not into doing this for exposing yeah. people's cell phone number and stuff like that. So mistakes have been made, but it, nothing, nothing extraordinary. I haven't seen the, the, the Roswell wreckage. Uh, <laughs> curious. No, I had to ask. I had to ask. Yeah, uh, we've got a, a question. question. We've got a question here from Walt. He says, how many of those requests have been closed? Gosh, I I don't have an exact number in front of me. I don't have the database up, but I, I would estimate I've I've got probably about five six hundred open requests okay. right now. That's kind of a rough estimate, but you know, rough roughly around there. A lot of requests too. Really quickly on that note, because it's a great question. A lot of times you file a request, and it depends on the agency, but some of them can be closed very quickly. Uh, right. So a document could be already tagged for public release it's just not available online so you file on a monday and if the agency isn't like a big one like cia or dia but maybe a smaller office sometimes you'll get it in a week or two and then they just close it so it it, it it's a lot easier on the processing while other ones are much more complicated and can take years yeah and i think am i right in saying that a lot of the requests come in on a friday if if you get something yeah i've seen i've seen you tweet out every now and again you know it's friday what am i going to get FOIA like? friday we cross our fingers yeah we call it FOIA friday and uh generally they wait for the weekly news cycle to go away and you know drop something towards the close of, of business day on on a friday and I, I don't really get the logic, especially this day and age, because, you know, they can write the story through the weekend and publish it Monday. So what's the difference, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I think they still find strategy in that. But, yeah, we we do we do have that uh, kind of running joke about FOIA Friday. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and one thing, I you know, you obviously we we get new cases cropping up here and there and and that. So I I'd imagine. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that you are straight into FOIA mode and you're shooting off requests left, right and center. So what's the kind of process when it comes to that? 
Yeah, it depends on on kind of a case by case basis. Uh, and by case, I just mean what are the what am I going for? What, what kind of information am I seeking? And that sometimes seems easy, but it's a very challenging thing to try and figure out what could be available. Uh, the FOIA allows you to essentially go after anything. And as long as it is a government record, or if somebody sends in a message to specifically about emails. So let's say I write or you write a government person uh, that becomes FOIAable. And so you can go after those communications. And I've received a lot of those, uh, which can become very interesting when you see scientists that are not government personnel and their email addresses and, and email boxes are not subject to the FOIA. But if they start communicating with NASA, all of a sudden they become FOIAable. And that's where it becomes very interesting because uh, you can then go after, let's say, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson's email box or Dr. David Spurgel, the, the one that's part of the UAP effort with NASA. Yeah. And so you just start putting your thinking cap on going, OK, let's try and figure out, you know, what is the best approach to this? And emails are a fascinating thing to dig into because, again, you start opening up into what would be a non FOIA arena, but all of a sudden it became subject to the FOIA. And, and so that's great to kind of see that communication. Uh, they, of course, redact personal information and, and stuff that, again, is on more of a personal nature. So some may kind of cringe and go, well, wait a minute, are you trying to get, you know, people's personal information and, and dig into their private communications? And that's not what it's about. Uh, but more so, what is the, again, I'm honing in on the NASA UAP as an example, sure. the, the investigation, yeah. but like, what's going on with that? You know, like, who are they talking to? Who are they extending invitations to take part in? And so you really kind of dig there. But those aren't the only things that are subject to FOIA. You go after different reports, periodic reports, like annual or quarterly reports. So it really depends on the situation, the topic and the agency. Uh, but then you just kind of sit down and, and, and try and figure out what the best mode of attack is and, and kind of go for it. Um, the challenge, though, is not being too broad. If you say, give me everything you got on UAP, uh, generally it's going to get rejected. That's not how it works. So you have to hone in on what exactly you're looking for. And it can get very challenging at times, but it's an awful lot of fun to try and figure out the best way to weed something out. Yeah, and I imagine that's just a skill that you've naturally kind of built up over the, the years that you've been doing this. Um, and I have to apologize for jumping back onto our previous point, but uh, Yoni's okay. got a great question here. She says, do you let some just fade out if they don't respond or do you keep pushing on every single one? Thank you for all your work, John. And uh, you're very welcome. Thank you for that. Uh, it's a great question. No, I never lose interest in the requests, uh, so I will... I will continue to ask about updates and when it's going to be processed. Generally, a government agency won't just like, you know, put it in the trash can. Generally, have I had the, oh, we never got it. Yeah, I've had that a couple of times and that's very frustrating. But generally, if you have a case number, it'll it'll be completed. Um, the government likes to do a tactic called uh, what we call still interested letters and the still interested letters, which are very, very frowned upon. And the Department of Justice, which which kind of oversees the FOIA efforts, has put out agency wide memos saying, you know, essentially don't use these. But and that was years ago. They still use them. And the agency will sometimes sometimes take two, four, even six or eight years to then send you a still interested letter and go, hey, well, you know, 
this was five years ago when you requested this. Are you still interested? <laughs> if you are, you have 30 days to get back to us. If you if we don't hear from you, we close the request. And it's so frustrating because sometimes you may not see it and yeah. they'll close the request. So um, a little extra information there. But to, to go back to the question, I never really lose interest, uh, just mainly because I am an advocate for preserving that history. So generally, if I'm going after something through FOIA, uh, there's there's a there's a reason for it. And I just don't like to, to see that information lost. No, I appreciate. It. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mentioned there about filing new requests when new cases come up this week. Obviously, we had Jeremy Corbell's latest, the the Mosul sphere. So uh, I guess my first question is, have you fired off any freedom of information requests on that? Yes. Yeah. Are you the, able the morning... to? I, I hate to admit it. I didn't uh, I didn't see the broadcast live. I was sound asleep. Uh, <laughs> I, I get up very early to work. But uh, when I woke up was was surprised to see that they had dropped a new still frame uh, image from a video. And yeah, uh, there's there's one thing that I will say about Jeremy Corbell that there's not really anybody that I can think of other than maybe George Knapp uh, as well that I can say this about. And that is when they come out, even though it's an anonymous source and it's leaked information, his track record from 2021 to date has been pretty solid. And what I mean by that is the Pentagon has acknowledged the leaks that Jeremy Corbell has published and George Knapp as well. The Pentagon has acknowledged that it's real information taken by the U.S. Navy, you know, depending upon the case, but taken by the sure. U.S. Navy and uh, are being utilized by the UAP task force. And so that's one thing that I always like to point out about Jeremy, because that absolutely fascinates me to no end. Because generally when leaked information comes out, even if it's unclassified or for official use only, generally it's pretty mum. You know, the government doesn't want to talk about leaks and stuff like that. And in 2021, in the ramp up to the UAP report that, that, that came out, that first one, yeah, the government was leaking like a sieve, right? <laughs> There's like a leak in a leak here and a leak here and a leak here. And they just like all these images were flying at us. And the Pentagon was like, yep, this one's real. Yep, this one's real. Yep, we utilize this one. And I'm like, how is this happening? Like, why? Why are they so quick? In one particular case, I literally got a, a, an acknowledgement within hours that yeah. the information was real and that it was being utilized by the UAP task force. What I didn't get was a confirmation that it depicted a unidentified object. And that's key here uh, when, when discussing all of this. Does the government consider it a unidentified aerial phenomena or anomalous phenomena, whatever their new acronym sure. is? Can't keep them straight. I give up. But regardless, like, do they designate it a true UAP and it's unidentified? Or is this designated UAP, but they determined it's a fill in the blank balloon, drone, whatever it may be. Uh, and I never got them to admit to that in 2021, but I did get them to admit that it was real information. Fast forward to this one. Here we go again. You know, after a long lull of nothing, we have a new one. So I've fired off the FOIAs, but also contacted the public affairs office at the Pentagon to try and get comment like I have in the past. Um, yes, that that does include everybody's favorite person, Susan Goff. Uh, but I also wrote the duty officer uh, for the media relations department to essentially see uh, if beyond Susan Goff's involvement, uh, can they speak to the leak themselves? Because I'm not trying to get anybody in trouble. 
but but this is obviously a viral story. So it's not like the Pentagon's like, oh, we just found out about this from John. No, I mean, it's it's everywhere at this point with all these media outlets picking it up. So what I want to know is what's going on? Like, how is it that this is being allowed? And the DOD just sits back and goes, eh, you know, who cares? Yep, that's real information. That's I mean, you, you, you go back to Edward Snowden leaks or other people who have leaked information to the general public. A lot of them are in hiding. A lot of them are wanted for multiple you know crimes, uh, waiting to see the inside of courtroom. So you don't have that with UAP. And even though the classification may be different, I know a lot of people probably jump on me that Edward Snowden was leaking highly classified top secret material. And this is supposedly unclassified. To, right. to the government itself, it's still a leak and a security concern. And so that was what was always confusing to me uh, where the Pentagon said no, that they weren't investigating it back in 2021. And I just always scratched my head going, why? You know, like, was this was this wanted? Meaning, like, were they OK with it out in the open? Did they want it out in the open? I, I don't know. I, I really wish I had the answer to it. Uh, but here we go again, and, and we'll see what happens. But this one, they seem to be very mum about it. They, they're not talking at all. I haven't gotten any response whatsoever. Uh, I Granted, it's only been a, a day and a half, but I wrote them very, very early yesterday morning when I saw it, just to kind of get the comment. And as you and I are chatting here the next day, midday, still nothing. Right. And, and and Jeremy and George, you know, they claimed or stated that this image was from a four second video. And there's been a lot of people saying, well, where's the video? And there's been no kind of comeback on that. But would you imagine that that is actually a classified video, even if it's four seconds long? If if what Jeremy is saying is true, that the still would be unclassified. No, I would imagine that that four seconds of a video would not be either. Um that would be 120 still frames, essentially. Right. Okay. So, you know, you're talking about 120 still frames of a four second video. If one of them is considered unclassified, all 120 would be. That's the way I would look at it. Okay. I yeah. can't see that anything would pop up in that four seconds that would determine it to be um, to be classified. But again, that's that's on the assumption that this is truly unclassified. It's not that I doubt Jeremy. But how did he determine that? And that's what I'm curious about, because information like that, especially when you have all of the graphical display of geo coordinates and stuff like that, the difference between this and stuff in the past is it is a war zone and it has now put U.S. equipment and a recon flight in a specific area on a specific date. And I can tell you just away from the UAP conversation, generally stuff like that is very secretive. And yeah. and it's because you start you start seeing where the players on the chessboard are and when they were there. And generally the US doesn't like that. So a lot of times when you see like FLIR videos or uh, recon videos that are shot over enemy territory, uh, we may know that it's Iraq. We may even know that it's Mosul, but they'll, either redact or blur those outer lines. And a lot of times the blur will then make a classified video unclassified simply by removing that information. So what made it classified was not the visual imagery, but rather the heads up display. 
So that I'm, you know, it's not that I doubt Jeremy, but I want to know like exactly how he was able to determine it was unclassified. And, and the last point I'll give is even if it is unclassified, there's still generally a for official use only or FOUO designators on unclassified information, especially data that comes from a war zone, um, active war right. zone or not. So yeah. there's, I think there's a lot of unanswered questions on this that may at this point have the Pentagon, and this is just a guess, I'm just speculating, but sure. now that they're seeing this caliber of information leaking, they may take a step back and go, okay, before we start confirming all this, let's figure out what's going on and how we're going to handle it. And I think that that's maybe what we're seeing. And because it's potentially not classified and it's unclassified, does you know? I was going to ask before you, you finished that. I started thinking of the question that does that mean you can just request it through FOIA? That look, it's not unclassified. If I ask for it, you can give it me. But does it go into sources and methods still a little bit that it becomes like it's not that straightforward? Uh, y y yes. Um, <laughs> it gets into a complicated territory, but yeah, essentially, we know the aircraft but we know the aircraft from Jeremy Corbell. Would the government yeah. sanction giving us that re reconnaissance aircraft with the platform on board? Maybe yes, I, I don't know the answer to that, but these are questions that, that essentially lead into, can you just assume that all of this is unclassified information? Um, but, but now we're, we're naming the, the recon aircraft over a specific target on a specific date in a war zone. Again, all of those are, are now getting into a very sensitive territory, even though it was 2016. Um, can you FOIA that? Yes. You can also do what's called a mandatory declassification review if it is classified. A prime example of this is the classified version of the UAP report. The 2021 had a classified brother that went along to Congress <laughs> in addition to the public. So I went after that through what's called the MDR process, which is slightly different from FOIA. I did the same with the quote unquote 2022 report that was released in 2023, uh, but in the same method. You can do that with videos. You can do that with photos. You can do that anything classified and request them to review it. And uh, the, the fact that it's been leaked and has circulated does not automatically mean a declassification can take place. You know, that they could essentially still deny the, 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 the release through FOIA or MDR, even though the real one's floating around out there. No, absolutely. I appreciate that. And I'd love to, I could, you know, I could talk about freedom of information for the whole interview, but let, let, let's just move it outside for a minute. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of this subject and a lot of people that have kind of been following this really kind of came into it after the 2017 New York Times and TTSA and all that kind of thing. But obviously you've been into this since just after the mid nineties. And so from that period from the mid nineties to 2017, how does that compare to what we've seen in the last sort of five or six years post 2017? You know, how, how does it look from someone that's been in both? Is it, is it very different or were there moments in that, that past bit that were quite exciting as well? No, it's very different. Uh, I wouldn't hide from that for a second. I, I mean, it, it is a different conversation and I split my answer in two ways to you, and I'll, I'll deal with the, the optimist part of me first, which is <laughs> we have the government and politicians talking about UAP and UFOs, and there is an active effort to investigate whatever these phenomena are. And I think that is absolutely fascinating. Prior to 2017, the whole crux of my research was aiming towards the, the reality, the fact, it was irrefutable 
that the government was saying, hey, we don't care about UFOs. We, we don't investigate them. We stopped in 1969, quit bothering us. But for years, I lined up all the pieces of evidence to show that for years and decades after Project Blue Book ended, there was ample evidence that whatever these phenomena were, were still a concern to the CIA, the DIA, uh, and the United States Air Force specifically had information showing that UFOs were being reported and recorded by the U.S. Air Force, the military agency that's been oddly mum throughout uh, this past couple of years, uh, go back 15 plus years. There were manuals that the Air Force did not want to talk about that had unidentified flying objects in them. That's all provable. They were active manuals. They were not left over. I, I proved that they were edited in, in 2000, 2002, and 2003, UFOs stayed in it. And then it wasn't until the Huffington Post at the time was going to profile it because they were doing a story on the Black Vault and they asked me about some documents. I gave them that. And then literally within uh, days, the Pentagon took the entire chapter out on UFOs and replaced it with something else. It's one of the most fascinating stories. But my whole point is, is that you had small nuggets of 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 wins to show that the government was active in this cover-up through 2017 then enter luis elizondo then the atip story then everything just kind of fell onto our laps that there was there were these other efforts going on so the conversation changed and that's what was fascinating because for me i just call it the post 2017 ufological era you know because pre-2017 is an entirely different history Post 2017, now you have, we're talking about it. It's in congressional legislation. There's active efforts going on. But here's the pessimist part of me. Secrecy, arguably, I know not everybody will agree with me here. The secrecy is deeper. And it has deepened to a point where 100% of UAP information from 2020 and beyond uh, it's gone. It's 100% classified and they have denied. I know you wanted to get away from FOIA, but just to use that. No, as no, an please example, do. Please. It's fine. Every legal way to access that information. So even though they released the FLIR, the gimbal and go fast, and that was about a two year effort, which we found out later was actually tied to a FOIA case that I had through DOD and the Navy and behind the scenes, I had put up the case uh, and an argument to have them release that based on every public statement that they gave about them, which was their undoing. There was no way that they could hold those. So now they've released those three. The security classification guide comes in for UAP. So they have a whole guide about how to classify UFOs that has shut down the release of anything else officially, everything, 100 percent. And there was a story I wrote last year about that very topic where the Navy specifically said everything that they have classified from top to bottom. They will not release anything. So that's the pessimist side of me where you have this conversation that's changed. And yeah, politicians are involved and all that is fantastic. But in the same respect, we have now found ourselves with a deepening secrecy all tied to that security classification guide. That's going to be something that'll haunt a lot of us as, as researchers for years to come because the government doesn't want to release anything. 
And I tried to get the Pentagon a few weeks ago when they did their Aero Media Roundtable. Uh, sure. If you heard yep. about that, yep. I tried to get them to address their uh, statements of transparency in the hopes that they wanted to share with you and I a, an openness era of, you know, this is what we're doing. But how do you couple that with the reality of, you know, people like me trying to get this st stuff, but it is classified from top to bottom? And how do you marry those two statements? And I have waited ever since. Susan Goff did, did tell me that she would take my questions uh, emailed because they didn't call on me in the, in the sure. round table, yeah. uh, which I wasn't too surprised over. But I was in line. They asked, uh, do you want to ask a question? And I said, yes. And uh, <laughs> they never called on me. But that was one of the two that I wanted to ask was, was how do you marry those two statements? And, I, and I'm not sure how they're going to answer that. Um, so it's, it's, there's a lot of good and a lot of bad is, is kind of the, the quick way to, to explain what's going on right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Christopher Mellon and many of the people have talked about the overclassification of information regarding UAP, but is that something that you've been surprised by when you've maybe filed a, a FOIA request and be like, well, I'm not asking for much, but then you've got a you know, a no result or, or something that's clearly they're overclassifying that. Is that something that's happening? Can you can you see it when something like that happens? Specifically to UAP, yes. I, I mean right. it, it's it's clear overclassification because it literally is everything. And and I wish I was exaggerating with that, but it, it literally is everything when it comes to UAP. Now I've been able to extract some documents, uh, PowerPoint presentations that allude to UAP events, but details literally are blacked out. You have blacked out pages top to bottom. So it's very, very tough to, to get that, that information out. So the overclassification thing is absolutely real when it comes to UAP. How do we fix it is, is something else entirely. And that's what I've been trying to essentially go through the public affairs office with my desire to write about this and get answers, which I haven't yet, but also through the legal means, because there's a reason why, why real journal, I don't consider myself a journalist, but real journalists out there working for the big uh, media outlets out there utilize the FOIA. And it's because you can only go so far with a spokesperson. It's the FOIA that truly does produce real results. I mean, it's, 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 it's requiring a lot of band-aids in a way, but I refuse to say it's broken because uh, not even with just UAP, it will produce a lot of phenomenal, pardon the pun, information that spokespeople won't. So it's still a very powerful tool, but I'm trying to figure out how is it that the three UAP videos were released in the way that they were, again, years after they were leaked, uh, but regardless, they finally were officially released. How is it that those are the th only three that they can release? Now everything else is just classified. And I ended up losing my appeal. And the appeal was to their decision to withhold everything else. And it's an untold number of videos. My case for the photos are, is still open. I kind of expect a similar response. Uh, but with specifically to UAP videos, they claim 100% of what they have is, is classified. And I don't have an answer to it. I really don't because uh, it is clear that they just don't want the general public to know anything about UAP. But in the same breath, they want to tell you that they're telling us everything about UAP and that it's, you know, <laughs> explainable in a lot of ways and it's trash and cl clutter and whatever farce that that New York Times thing was. 
Uh, but they're not really telling you the reality that approximately whatever half or, or whatever the, the exact percentage is, they still can't identify. And so they're just going to tell you one side and, and not the other. So it, it's reinforcing for me that there's absolutely something there, but that, that, that deepening secrecy is such a challenge to overcome. And I'm not sure how we can fix it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've had statements from Harry Reid and many other people that what we've seen in those three videos is kind of the, the bottom of the rung, you know, and there's so much clearer and better stuff out, you know, that's that's there within the government somewhere that, you know, maybe we won't ever see it. Um, Lou Elizondo has talked about this 23 minute video. Is there any way that that can be put into a FOIA request or is it? just too vague because we don't have any real sort of real information on where it may reside or who may have taken it and and that not just for the 23 minute video but anything like that can you kind of shoot off requests in a direction that might actually allude to these videos existing within the pentagon or the government yeah and and uh, to answer your question you can absolutely request it is it too vague very much so uh, right doesn't mean I won't try, and, and I do have a request to open for it. Uh, his IG complaint, when it was published by the New York Post, went into detail about a video that was shared with Neil Tipton, yeah. who at the time uh, you know, was, was working. He's actually still there, uh, but was, was working uh, at the Pentagon and sent an email with the subject, that UFO video. And so that's a little bit more specific, and I have been working on that for quite some time. I'm not trying to give a tease, uh, but I'm hoping that that request is coming to a close. I have fought considerably hard to get that finalized. I am surprised how it's coming out um, because I'm trying to figure out like what, you know, who's what's the truth here. <laughs> and and it's really, really difficult to try and navigate uh, finding that out because Luis Elizondo's IG complaint had that that title. But if he was off just by a couple characters, you know, or if it wasn't that UFO video, it was this UFO film. I know that sounds silly, but I'm just using that as a as a mm -hmm. uh, juxtaposition sure. where yeah. if you have the wrong quote and so they, OK, well, I'm going to search for that UFO video and uh, that's negative. So sorry, John, we have nothing. But in reality, it was that UFO film. Uh, that's potentially what's what's the problem. So, you know, I've tried to figure out ways to get around those types of games, try and extract those those uh, emails, even the video itself. Luis Elizondo had referenced uh, a drive, a folder on one of the drives, and I had a FOIA request in for that. They denied that it it was available or existed on any backup form. But we don't know. You know, that doesn't mean anything. I, did, I don't even think I wrote about that simply because it, it's why, you know, I there. I'm not going to make a big deal out of it because if it was a backup drive then in 2017 or 16 or 15 or whatever, who's to say that they backed it up properly or if if uh, if that was even where the data was. So, yeah, I don't even think I wrote about it, but I tried to tried to get it. So whatever tidbits come out from either Luis Elizondo or anybody that works on the inside you look for those little little tidbits, those little nuggets of information that you can try and grasp onto and then file a FOIA and see what you can find out. And, and that's absolutely what I've done, whether it be the UAP reports that are published and I go through line by line seeing what you can try and figure out to the New York Post publishing the IG complaint, seeing what I can figure out and just kind of go from there. 
Yeah, yeah. And I just brought this up from Dan because he just literally had popped this in just before you mentioned it. Have you heard anything about the contents of the Y Project Drive? Uh, not the contents, no. And that was the one that I was, I'm trying to pull it up here, but uh, uh, that was the one that I was alluding to that uh, the OSD is saying uh, essentially no no records. So I'm going to see if I can pull up the letter, see if I have it, but um, here, here's the final response. Hold on. And again, I didn't even write about this, so this is all unpublished. I don't think I posted it. No but, problem. Um, the, yeah, they gave oh, me One no second, records. John. So, I've just lost audio. I think it might be me? my end. Bear with me. No problem. I'm still getting levels. Uh, I don't Range. know if you can hear me or not. Are you there still? Can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, you're back. It's all right. I think okay. it's my iPods running out of battery. My AirPods, sorry. Oh, okay. There we go. No, sorry no, to no interrupt problem. you. Not a problem. No. Uh, if if it is my side, just let me know. I've got levels though, so just uh, let me know if I drop out again. Um, I've got a little anyway, bit of crack, June... crackle on your end that I was getting on my AirPods. Just um, for anyone in the live chat, can you hear any crack? Yeah, John's audio is distorted. Ryan Sprague. Thank you, Ryan. Sure, I can. Well, I haven't changed anything. Uh, <laughs> That's so strange. I thought it was my yeah. AirPods, but everyone's saying John's crackling. All right. Uh, well, if you'd like, <laughs> I can pop out of the room real quick and then come back. Yeah, let's give that a whirl. Thank you, John. Sorry about that. No, no, no. No, no problem. No problem. Give me one Thank you, everyone in the live chat. That I thought it was my AirPods because sometimes when the battery's low, I kind of I feel like they go a bit bit loopy. So this is the uh, the beauty of live uh, interviews, you know, technical issues. Uh, luckily, it doesn't happen too often. Right. Let's see if that's fixed. How is Just that? Need... That's perfect. That... Back to back to normal. I didn't change anything. Streamyard. So I blame Streamyard. <laughs> um, all right. So so back to the. Uh... Uh, to, to that Y drive. So I specifically filed on that. And on June 28th, 2022, uh, for anybody who wants to verify this, it was case 22F0952. They said no records. But again, I, I never wrote about it because you know, that's something very hard to chase down. You don't know exactly what was on the drive, which would define the records retention schedule, which would define whether or not it should still be there. So, John, sorry, that crackles. Some that crackles come back and it's almost skipping your visuals a slight. I don't, uh, I don't, I don't know. What to do. <laughs> um, I don't have another audio source. It's just my mixer. Uh, see now that's come back. That's all right again. Now. I don't know if it's a bandwidth thing or people are saying he's crackling and fasting forward, uh, and lagging, but you're back normal again. That's really strange. All right. Um, well, I turned the stereo audio off. Is that any better? I mean, it does sound good again. All? Yeah. I'm just okay. going to check to make well, sure we'll it's not my it. end with the speed test, but we can carry on, please. Sorry to keep interrupting, but I know that the no, chat no, is that's, a, that's okay. I hope it's not my end though. Um, but anyway, hopefully that all came out. It just, they're, 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 they're not yeah. saying that anything is there. Um, to, to juxtapose that with the story I wrote about the emails uh, and Luis Elizondo's emails, right. uh, that was a huge discovery that I feel that they deleted the information prematurely. And that even in a grander scale, I felt was incredibly important because how much information 
are we losing? Uh, but that had specific uh, targets to the FOIA request. So I was able to determine what the records retention schedule were, uh, what, what the records retention schedule was for Luis Elizondo's emails. And it looked like that they deleted them well ahead of schedule. So was that a mistake? Was that just lackadaisical record keeping? Uh, was it some grand conspiracy to cover up his writing and, and emails? I don't know. But uh, that said, they, they were deleted prematurely. With the Y drive or the Y project folder, uh, impossible to know what was on there. Yeah, no, I appreciate the answer, definitely. Uh, now, one thing that's obviously quite uh, in in everybody's mouths at the moment, a conversation piece is crash retrievals. And, you know, we can talk, well, I was going to say we can talk all day about Wilson Davis, but we can't because there's just probably not much point because nobody really knows the ins and outs. But speaking on crash retrievals themselves, have, has there any ever been anything in any of the documents that you found that alludes to that is there anything that that you can think of off the top of your head yeah i've had uh, documents for years even well prior to, to 2017 and even the atip years of the cia having material of some kind and i did a video about this on my channel and and essentially what they had was something that was hand carried to another scientist in in the cia this was years after blue book right and the advice that the scientists gave was redacted and you couldn't really tell like what it was all about or even what the material was, but you could tell that it was material of, of some kind. And, and it was an interesting discovery because keep in mind the time frame that this is within 10 years of Project Blue Book ending. Yeah. And yet inside the walls of the CIA, they're still looking at what wreckage, a piece of something, who knows? But there was material there, and the scientists were obviously intrigued. Uh, through the 1940s, there was a UFO, uh, what, they, what they called a flying saucer case over Denmark. And the details of the case were essentially non-existent, but what was in there were photographs of something that was connected to this flying saucer from Denmark. Now, fast forward decades to, I believe, the 1980s, there was a man by the name of Bob White, and he had a UFO encounter. I profiled him on a, a History Channel show that I had produced uh, many, many years ago. And the short of it is he saw this UFO. It shot up towards the sky to another UFO. And as it shot up, it ejected this piece of material. So he goes out, and it's glowing red. And he goes out, and he thought it was hot. But as, as, as he got near it, he realized it wasn't hot at all. He was actually able to touch it. Right. Picked it up, took it to his car, put it in his trunk, and it essentially stayed in, I guess, in his attic, if I remember the story, uh, for, for quite a few years. And then they ended up uh, uh, resurfacing it through his uh, buddy, who was a big kind of UFO guy. He learned about the case. He said, hey, bring it down. Well, anyway, that case from the 1940s with the photographs of the picture from the flying saucer in Denmark had photographs of an object of some kind that was eerily similar to the one where this Bob White goes out and picks up an object uh, in the desert. Now, he did not, according to him, of course, he could be lying, but according to him, he never knew about these documents from the 1940s. And so you've got incidents that are separated by 40, 50 years. I forget his exact uh, incident date, but 40, 50 years on records that really didn't see the light of day for a while. These guys stumbled upon the documents on the Black Vault, realized that there was a connection. That's how he and I met. 
And look, I'm not here to say that that's a piece of an alien spacecraft or anything. Sure, sure. But that's pretty awesome that that there's documents that talk about a a flying saucer case where you have material, photographs of this material, uh, and then a UFO case from somewhere else, decades and decades apart, and the object that they re retrieved from whatever this UFO was looked very similar to it. So it was a really weird tie-in. And of course, you know, skeptics can easily come up with stories and ex explanations. They feel Bob hoaxed it. Um, he did pass multiple lie detector tests. Uh, we had reviewed all of that before we put him on the History Channel. Um, we, I saw the piece. I mean, it's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, mm. And again, people can find identical ways to produce that piece, but that doesn't really necessarily negate what Bob had or the experience. Sure. It could just mean that they can, yeah, make that piece some, somehow, uh, but regardless could have been from some craft of some kind, alien or otherwise. So it was a really interesting tie-in. So to, to go back to your question about material, there are documented incidents. There, there, there's not a ton of them, but documented incidents of material that they've had. Now you've got, I think it was, uh, I'm drawing a blank if it was Moultrie who said it, but he said that, that, that essentially the material that they've seen uh, didn't bring up any red flags, you know? Uh, and I'm paraphrasing there. I don't remember the exact quote, but but yeah. essentially it was just that. But what did he admit to? And this is where the FOIA comes into play. He has now said there's material. So I can use that and say, well, look, your guy just admitted that there's material of some kind, whether it be a Chinese fighter or a Russian drone or it doesn't even matter. He referenced that material. And that is gold because now you can use that in a FOIA request. And if they say, Oh, sorry, we got nothing, then you can appeal it and go, look, you know, one of your guys said it, not me. So you must have something. So was he making it up? Or is there something else to be found? So I think that there's, I think that part of the story is unwritten. Uh, meaning that I think that that it's um, hasn't really come to light in full yet. I think that there's more to the story. And, and yeah, I've filed based on that statement. I'm just drawing a blank on the quote itself. So I apologize. But fine. Uh, that said, you know, it, all of that is very, very useful when trying to dig and dig and dig and find where that material might be. Yeah, no, uh, something that's uh, I, I appreciate that, 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 uh, that answer there, but something that's just flowing through the chat right now, and it was in my DMs on social media is so many people really want to be able to to do their own FOIA requests, but they seem to not know where to start. Is there a, do you have anything currently on the Black Vault where it's like a, a beginner's guide or anything like that? Is there, is there anything you can sort of advise? To, yeah, to people? I, I, I don't, but I get that request a lot. And I'm, I'm definitely wanting to, to do kind of a short video on it and, and explain it. Um, I can tell you that your best friend, if you're getting into FOIA is going to be a website called FOIA.gov, F-O-I-A dot G-O-V. And essentially, that's the roadmap to every single FOIA office for every single agency that you can FOIA on a federal level. And that's a great way to start because that'll get you to where you want to go. Determining what to request is then just simply up to you. Right. And the easiest uh, way that I can explain this, but also the best advice that I can give you is skirt the line between not being too vague, meaning give me everything on UAP. Uh, okay. because they'll reject that as being too vague. Sure. 
skirt the line between being too vague and being too specific. Because if you believe that something happened in December of 2022, and you say, give me everything that you have on a UAP case from December of 2022, but it actually happened November 30th, what happens is, is they can come back and say, sorry, John, we have no records, but you were so specific that you just missed the month. And yes, they do play those types of games and, right. and I've learned the hard way. So you skirt the line between not being too broad, but not being too specific. You want to skirt the line in the middle and get as much as you can. And don't be afraid to be creative, uh, to, to go for, for email searches and, and try and figure out the best uh, way to ask for things. And a lot of it is trial and error. You know, it's, yeah. it's, I don't consider anybody a FOIA expert uh, just simply because I, I think that, that all of us who utilize it, even if you filed more than 10,000 cases, we're learning stuff all the time. And then when you think that you've learned it or mastered it, they change it. And that makes it even worse. So, so the, the bottom line is just be patient, you know, and, and realize that on the other, on the other hand uh, of all of this, on the other side of the telephone or, or the receiving end who gets your email uh, is a human being. And I think a lot of people forget that because they, they just think everybody's just a big, bad, evil government person. Sure. And they're really not. You know, I, I, a lot of most FOIA offices, they want to help you. Most FOIA case officers want to help you. So just remember, you know, they're just like all of us. For the most part, they want to help you. Sadly, that's not true in 100 percent of the cases. But just find that out on your on your on your own and realize when they are really bad. Get, make them give you a reason to not like them uh, because most of them are, are pretty good and want to help you. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, you talk about the government and trust and things like that. And we know that within various agencies and specifically uh, AFOSI with Richard Doty, that misinformation and disinformation has been prevalent throughout these agencies for decades. So, yeah. you know, how do you how do you kind of keep that in mind when looking at information that you may get in that, that something might seem off and like, how do you believe everything or not? I think you know what I'm trying to get at. I just don't sure. really know how to phrase it. How do you it. trust them? Yeah. Yeah, the 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 best advice that I can give on that is is sadly you you have to trust them to a a point, but always question it. Right. So you you have to understand that sometimes maybe they are not knowingly lying to you, but they're parroting information from somebody else that wants to lie to you. Uh, so, so trying to weed through that, yeah, is incredibly difficult, whether it be through spokespeople and, and, and those trying to write articles or get information in that way or going through FOIA, you know, and, and the best way I can describe it is you're playing a game where they make the rules, they are the referee, and you have to play with your hands tied behind your back. And that really is the reality of it, you know, and, and when you appeal something, uh, you do get different offices involved and you get different people involved. There's an expression that I use, which is always appeal. It took me years <laughs> to know that I was wrong by not appealing. I thought that the moment they said, sorry, John, we have no records on this, uh, that they just had no records. Uh, why would I appeal that? But then after years, I realized, no, if you truly feel or have evidence that, that maybe that's not true, appeal it. And you'd be shocked to, to see how many times that somebody else at a higher office will look at it and go, hey, you know what? This search wasn't adequate enough. 
and then they'll bump it back. They call it remand. So they'll remand the request back to the FOIA officer and say, hey, we think John has a case here. We want you to re-review the documents or research for records because he has a, a good case that, that something exists. Sometimes they'll say, sorry, John, we still didn't find anything. And then you're kind of, you know, left out in the cold a little bit. Other times, then all of a sudden things come up and things that weren't found the first time uh, are, are found on the second search, you know, and even though they're not held accountable for that, because it could have just been human error, realize sure. that that part of the process works. So I always recommend uh, to do it. So trust, but absolutely verify and absolutely push if you feel that there's more information because more times than not you'll you'll find you'll find more stuff you'll find more to the story yeah and talking about that you're currently working on uh, a timeline for the the whole a tip orsap uh, story argument conversation whatever anybody wants to call it and do you still have a lot of like requests in with regards to the kind of missing pieces from that because we have conflicting data but i'm sure there are still things that could come forth that fill those gaps and smooth out this ever baffling conversation. Yeah, yeah, quite a few. And and they're still open and quite a few appeals also. So, you know, I, you often not you, uh, I often will get chastised, you know, if I say something and, and it seems like I don't believe somebody. Sure. But but regardless of what I think, the the FOIA requests, if they come back negative, I will appeal them, even based on that person that may question uh, whether or not they're being 100% uh, accurate with what they're saying. But I will still cite that in a, in a Freedom of Information Act appeal and still go for it and challenge it and say, hey, this former employee of yours uh, says X, Y, and Z. You says this, this doesn't exist. I'm appealing your adequacy of the search uh, based on your former employee and go from there. So again, I kind of hold no bias when it comes to, to the FOIA. I will push it as far as I can uh, and, until they say absolutely no, you know. Uh, so to try and make sense of it, yeah, I've got numerous FOIA requests that are still open, numerous FOIA appeals that are still open. The big one about OSAP, which was headquartered at DIA, what I can't get a solid answer on is if the DIA has released everything on that, on, on OSAP. And uh, it's incredibly difficult to try and, and get answers from them because their FOIA office is one of the worst to deal with. <laughs> oh, no. uh, they are incredibly backlogged uh, by the tune of like thousands and thousands of cases. Right. And so to get them to like even call you back is is a ridiculous effort. Um, so that that I still have appeals open uh, using Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, the book where it lists a bunch of documents in the back. That stuff is gold because all that is tied to that former employee uh, that worked for the DIA. And those he's saying those documents exist. So if he says those documents exist, then I can use that because it's a published document. Uh, meaning a book. I'm pointing at there's a bookcase over here. That's why I keep pointing to it. Not that anybody <laughs> knows that, but it's over there, I swear. Um, but I use that book because it's it's co-written by a former DIA employee, and he says that those records are real. The fact that I can cite that again goes into FOIA appeals and requests. Sadly, none of those documents have surfaced yet, uh, other than the DIRDs, which uh, yeah. have all been posted, with the exception of one. So it's tough to fig to figure out the timeline because you have conflicting uh, information on both sides, right? So it, sure. I'm, I don't pinpoint like one side being 
um, the problem here. All sides are the problem because no one agrees, you know, like they all come out with a, a story and that's what makes it uh, difficult is to try and figure out what that timeline is, what documents are actually there. And also what are potentially BAS documents or private sector documents versus DIA. And then that leads to a whole new question mark. So it's, it's challenging. What I, what I did with the timeline that you brought up originally it was designed years ago for ATIP and, and OSAP and to try and make sense of all the, the different things that were being said and the dates. But recently I thought, okay, let's, let's expand it to, to post what I call the, the post, uh, post OSAP and ATIP era. Uh, so sure. I include all of OSAP and ATIP. So it starts about 2007, 2008 and goes to date. And it includes all of the stuff since then, UAP task force, uh, revelations, arrow, uh, AOI MSG, like oh, this is an impossible list of acronyms to get straight, <laughs> but to try and, and, and put all these things together. But for me, I like, I literally made it for, for me. I don't know if anybody else will get value out of it, but I'll get these documents from the government and you start to see patterns emerge of like, let's say briefings for NASA, uh, administrator, Bill Nelson you start seeing when the UAP task force started contacting NASA. Uh, that was a discovery. It had never been revealed before uh, through fo a FOIA case that I did where the task force initiated contact with NASA. They wanted to mm. brief NASA on UAP and requested that the director of the International Space Station program would, would be in the briefing. So you start seeing all these like little things emerge and patterns and who does what and where they are and so on and so forth. And it's kind of interesting to see the timeline kind of play out. It is far from over. I could call it a preliminary release. So there's, there's still a lot more to be done. So you'll probably see some major events to like, why did John not put that? <laughs> Trust me. It, it's just far from over. Uh, yeah. But that's, that's the intent with that is to just try and make sense of it. Cause it is absolutely confusing. No, absolutely. appreciate that. And it's something we, you know, we, we all kind of want to understand the, well, what it was all about and how it works. So, no, I appreciate that. Um, John, I've just got to go and shut a door. I've noticed it just swing open, but I'm going to leave you the question because I can still hear you. So sure. bear with me. Dan has asked, John, what are your thoughts on companies like Enigma? Will data going to these companies be trapped within government systems? That's a great question, Dan. Um, here's how I would address that. Uh, I find it, and this is not against Enigma. I'm, I want to speak more generally here. I find it concerning that companies in the public realm want to advocate for UFO transparency and access to data and get all of your information. Those who have had encounters, uh, had experiences, archive it, but in the same breath, make a deal with the US government and partner with them or share data or share information. And I, again, I'm not trying to talk bad about Enigma, but I find it really interesting that that's going on. And I go back to the MUFON uh, slash OSAP handshake that yeah. no one knew about for years, <laughs> where if somebody went to MUFON and they reported their information, Robert Bigelow at the time, who a lot of people in MUFON and I was heavily involved, I, I've, uh, not as a member or a board member, but rather I was emceeing for their international symposium. 
Right. And so I got to to kind of hang out in some of their meetings and stuff uh, during that time, simply because I was in charge of their symposium and keeping them on schedule and stuff like that. So when the Bigelow days were going on, it was just it was a kind of a bizarre thing, but nobody really thought it was some government program. Now, fast forward, that came out. And the question mark was, well, what information that somebody thought they were giving a UFO research organization, what information is going over to the U.S. government? Right. Was it their name? Was it their address? Was it their phone number? Was it a what, what was it? And so you think that you're sharing it with a private entity, you know, a nonprofit that that aims for UFO research and transparency and so on. And secretly, it's it's tied to the U.S. government somehow through Robert Bigelow and Bass and and the DIA. That to me, I've said this a couple of times, I'll say it again. That to me is one of the most under talked about aspects to that entire story and how like more people aren't going, what, like, how did that happen? Uh, kind of boggles my mind a little bit. Cause I find that fascinating, um, uh, and concerning, uh, all rolled into one emotion because I think that that's, that's something that if true, meaning the DIA really wanted access to that data, they're having a private corporation, uh, through a contract, collect information on us citizens. That to me is mind blowing, you know, um, and, and if, if that's not true, then to what extent was desired and, and that I keep trying to dig on and and figure out. But it's been however many years and still no answers. So now that we have these these entities coming up, Enigma being one of them that wants to kind of partner with the government or has have these meetings, that is the that is the source of the cover up for decades. Right. That is the source of the distrust that the general public has on. Are we being told the truth about UAP? So now organizations are coming aboard saying, well, we want transparency. We want your experiences. We want all your information. By the way, we've partnered with the U.S. government. And that doesn't to me, that doesn't jive really well because it it's, uh, in my opinion, counterproductive. Same with the TTSA deal. Um, I was fairly vocal about that simply because. I knew and know some of the people that had the uh, UAP material that were either purchased by TTSA or on loan. And the problem with that is you are saying as, a, as an organization, uh, the government's lying. We're, we're, we're bringing this out to light. We need more transparency, this and that. So they collect all this UAP material. And where do they take it? right back to the US military. <laughs> yeah. Now, was that the best option? Some people will argue with me and say, yes, it was maybe we can get answers. But we haven't gotten answers yet. And the weird thing about that is the army actually gave me more answers than TTSA has. I've written a few articles about this, tried to get answers from both TTSA shut me down, the army actually admitted they did testing. And so okay. I, I have that in writing published it a year or two ago now. And but the question mark is, where is it? So there's, yeah. there's these promises of openness and transparency, uh, but we don't see it. And the question mark is why? So that's what concerns me about, especially new startups where you don't know who's involved. I know Enigma really wants to keep their upper uh, echelon uh, confidential, which I can respect, but you still have to ask that question. Well, wait a minute, like who really is behind this? And why are we getting in bed with the same entity we are saying is not transparent to us? So it, for me, I love, you know, I grab my popcorn and just want to <laughs> see how it all plays out because 
it it creates so many questions for me that uh, I, I don't know if I'll ever have the answer to. No, no, I agree. And, and one thing that you mentioned all that with Robert Bigelow and Orsap and Bass is that we know or we've been told by people that worked under Bigelow, like Colin Kelleher and that, that there was this huge database that they created. And then people are saying, well, why do we not have access to that database if it was from the government? That's taxpayer money. And where is it? Or is it in private hands? Like that's a, a real thing that crops up all the time people asking me that and I, said, I don't know so like, what are your thoughts on that you know have you have you gone for that database have you have you tried i to... have yeah and and uh really the dia essentially says that it just is not a dia uh asset i, I would have to look up the cases but i i know that right. they've done no records on specific searches like that for the database and if it is something that that robert bigelow currently has and it was funded by OSAP money or taxpayer money. If the DIA wants to deny it exists and say, no, we didn't want, look, OSAP had nothing to do with UAP, or I think the going line now is they utilized UAP in some of their work, but that was not the the, the angle of, of OSAP. So that's right. fine, right? Like get the, the controversy aside, whatever. If all that material is there and it was paid for and financed by the $22 million over the course of, of a couple of years that went to Bass, mm. my thing is release it all. Yeah. Because the government is not gonna say anything. They denied that they had any involvement in any of this UAP stuff. Now, I wanna give the asterisk, I don't want personal information. Take all of that out. Of course, of course. But I mean, if, if there's uh, information in there, photographs, videos, encounters, dates, times, whatever, uh, throw it out there, right? I mean, we paid for it. The, the general, the, the American taxpayer paid for it. So just do it. Uh, the DIA, if they want to deny it, then just do it. I, I don't see any problem with that. Um, some I've seen argue with me when I say that saying, well, you know, he can't do that future contracts, this future contracts, that the amount of publicity I feel his corporation would get if there was some kind of backlash for the DIA openly saying, no, we didn't want this. No, we don't have it. No, we didn't finance it. No, no, no. And so Bigelow says, okay, here you go. And then the DIA creates some kind of ruckus after that. Uh, I believe his corporation will be just fine with the amount of worldwide attention that he would get of a massive cover-up uh, that was all rooted to the Defense Intelligence Agency, a military arm of the U.S. government uh, that... Uh, you know, was spying on U.S. citizens or their encounters or or lying to the general public. I mean, the list goes on and on. So that's my long-winded way of saying, in my opinion, just release it all. I, I truly think that that information should be with the people. Um, closing thought, though, if he funded it, then maybe instead of publishing everything, that he should talk a little bit about clarity on what was OSAP. You know, what was that... What was that aim? Was it really what we have been led to believe? And if so, then I go back to the publish everything thing. Uh, but if it was not, maybe we should get some some clarity because it, it's they're muddy waters. They really are. And, <laughs> yeah. and especially as as the information that has come out has come out, uh, it's only made it muddier. Yeah, absolutely. And let's just stick before we finish off. And I really mm -hmm. wanted to ask your opinion on this and uh, your opinion specifically. When we talk about ORSAP, we know it's associated with Skinwalker Ranch. And this is a location that throws up so much controversy. Some people are really into it. Some people really 
are not and everything in between. So I'd love to know over the years through the NIDS era and, and so on, right up to modern day, for everything you've seen and heard about, what is your thoughts on what's going on at Skinwalker Ranch? You know, I, I'm not trying to get out of your question. I truly don't know. I really don't. I've never been there. I'm the type of person that kind of needs to to see, to believe. Okay. Uh, and I would love to, to be there. Um, I worked for History Channel for a long time and produced for them. So I don't want to seem like I'm talking bad about them. I wish that it wasn't a show on History Channel, you know, that I wish that there was more independent research with data that, look, if there was something proved by this locale uh, that we saw it. What I can say, though, is that there are other places like Skinwalker that have very similar stories. One is the Marley Woods uh, locale. I interviewed um, uh Tom Ferrario, who worked with Ted Phillips, the late Ted Phillips, who I was friends with for years and years and years. Ted was an amazing person. And he published a lot of that uh, uh, data when he would analyze, you know, physical trace, what he called trace evidence with UAP. He published a lot of it. Um, I have most of the reports that were analyzed through Phyllis Budinger, who is an analytical right. chemist. I've got all those reports. So that's what the kind of stuff that I would love to see with with Skinwalker. And I know that they did a lot of stuff with with Marley Woods. So there's there's locations that have stories very similar to Skinwalker. Um, I just get I just get skeptical when TV shows and books surround it versus investigation and people saying, look, this is what it is. And the books can come after. But like show something where you go, look, this is what we recorded. This is irrefutable, you know, and, and that's published out there, whether it be in a journal or whatever. Uh, but that's out there. And then, yes, books. And then, yes, TV shows. Sure. And sadly, with Skinwalker, we never saw it. So I don't want to sound like a, I'm skeptical and just completely shut to the idea. Um, Brandon Fugel completely intrigues me, just the the way I've talked to him a few times. Uh, I hope to have an interview with him soon. But uh, he intrigues me just because of why he does what he does and, and the experiences he ha has had and and why he, you know, invests the money into that. I mean, that kind of stuff fascinates me. So, you know, I, I wish I had a better answer for you. Like, yeah, I think it's a total paranormal hotspot, but I'm still, no, no, I'm I understand. still on the fence on it. Yeah, I think a lot of us are. I, just, I was just interested to, to hear your aspect, you know, because you obviously were, you're quite familiar with the NIDS days pre all this, you know, in, in your face on TV. So, no, I appreciate the answer. Uh, so, John, listen, one really last question is, of what course. does 2023 look like going forward for John Greenwald Jr. and the Black Vault? Man, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I have all these plans uh, coming into 2023 and everything just kind of uh, falls uh, flat. Um, uh, I haven't said this publicly, but I'll, but I'll, I'll say it. I was going to po post it maybe later. Uh, my dad uh, ended up in the hospital the day after Christmas, and so oh, I'm sorry to hear. Yeah, so world gets turned upside down, man. When yeah. when uh, you know my dad goes into the hospital, um, so he's uh, he's dealing with that right now, which in turn you know kind of threw our lives upside down. Um, and why I say that is you know 2023. As you look at the last couple of years with how crazy things have been. Man, I have no idea what 2023 is going to hold. <laughs> um, I I hope that. Um, I hope that I can really sit down and create the content that I want to create to kind of help uh, the general public make sense of some of these stories. You know, that's what I love to do. Um, a lot of times, you know, I'll get documents that have never been released before. I love that kind of stuff. Who knows what 2023 will bring? 
some of the cases I have open would be awesome if I got the released material tomorrow. Uh, but as we talked about earlier in the show, I have no idea if it's going to be 2033 by the time some of this is released. <laughs> yeah. So I have no idea. But, you know, I just I kind of take it one day at a time. And the UFO field specifically fascinates me to no end because we have no idea what's going to come tomorrow. You know, we really don't. I mean, things are, are constantly changing and uh, constantly um, morphing and evolving. And, and that's what's the fun of it. So what's going to happen? Your guess is as good as mine, but I'm going to keep trucking away, seeing what I could uncover and, and uh, you know, create more content that I love doing. I just absolutely love it. I just wish there were more more hours in the day. No, I, I, I feel you 100% on that. Absolutely. Well, listen, John, thank you so much for being here and discussing all of your work. But from one family man to another, I really send you all of my best wishes for you and your family as well. Thank you. I appreciate that's number that. one at the end of the day. Um, so to everyone in the live chat, thank you so much for being here. This has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, I have a, an episode releasing this weekend with Matt Ford from the Good Trouble Show that premieres this Saturday. And then I'm recording something on Saturday, which I'll announce next week. And then next week, I think I'm live with Philip Mantle to talk about the alien autopsy. If my schedule's right in my head, it's all over the place. So thank you ever so much anyway, guys. And yeah, take care, enjoy your day, and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye for now.